And if you've got your Bibles here, let's start off with a passage that most of you will probably know and recognize. And I'm going to Ezekiel chapter 37. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to start this off at verse 1. And this is what Ezekiel said. And the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them around, and behold, there were many, many in the open valley, and indeed they were dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O God, you know. And he said to me, Prophecy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm in verse 11. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they indeed say, O bones, our bones are dry and our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore I prophesy unto the bones and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you to the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people. And, my, and I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Yes, my name is David, but I'm one of those dry bones. And I'm standing here today as a fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm Israeli. I live in the land of Israel. Um, I speak a language that you sang here a moment ago. I speak a language called Hebrew. Sometimes the Bible calls us the Hebrews. Okay. I come from the land of Judea, which means I'm also Jewish. Okay. And we're going to kind of connect all of those. And the fact that I'm standing here today, in my mind, is a modern day miracle. The fact that I'm saying this, the fact that I'm teaching this, the fact that I'm sharing this with you, means that God has his fingers in the affairs of men today. Now, I know that sounds big. I want to give you a little bit of the details of that story. And we'll talk about how that happened and how the fact that I'm standing here today came, came about. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of information, a little bit of truth. And I'm going to actually give you a role to play in the battle that has taken place. I'm here to give you a role to play in the battle for my country. But as we'll talk about later, I found out that you have a role to play in my battle, but you also have the same kind of role to play in your battle. But let's start off with an amazing story because I want to connect me and you to a story about a little tiny nation in the middle of nowhere. It's connected to a promise. By the way, it's on the other side of the world, literally on the other side of the globe. Okay, we're going to be using uh, the PowerPoint presentation and maps. Anybody here with a military background knows that there's one thing that officers love, and that's maps. So we'll be doing a little bit of maps. Uh, hopefully you will have this presentation to use. And the idea is to give you an understanding and a truth about how the state of Israel came to be. But it starts off with us being over there on the other side of the world. And a part of the world on the corner of the Mediterranean Sea, this is the Mediterranean Sea. 
a little sliver of land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, the Mediterranean Sea is full of history. I mean, this is Spain, this is Italy, this is Greece, this is Turkey. I mean, it, it all happens here. And in the middle of all of that, there's a tiny little sliver that we call the Holy Land or Israel. By the way, it's tiny. It's smaller than New Jersey. I mean, we're a drop in a bucket. It is a little pinch of something in the middle of nowhere. But it is in a very special location. The location starts off with a little bit of the geography. This is Europe. This is Africa. And this is Asia. And God's put us smack in the middle. We call ourselves the land bridge. We are the connector between all three continents. And anybody who wants to move from Europe to Africa or from Asia to Africa or back has to pass through the tiny little sliver of the land that we call Israel. God put us in a very, very important place. But he didn't make it easy. Because all these green blobs are our neighbors. And some of them have names that are a little bit of a problem. Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Tunisia, Algiers. All of these are Muslim nations surrounding the land of Israel. And he put us in a very unique position. We have a saying in Hebrew that God gave us an amazing country. He gave us amazing beaches, a wonderful high-tech industry. I mean, agriculture. I mean, it is a beautiful country. Those of you who come to visit, he just put us in a very crummy neighborhood. <laughs> and the neighborhood is going down the drain as we speak. And this is part of what we need to talk about. And the reason that we're there is because God decided that we are going to be. And it says this, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and he said to you and your descendants, do I give this land? It's not the United Nations that made the decision. It's not the Jewish people that made the decision. God decided to give this land to Abraham and his descendants. This is the promised land. And the descendants were chosen by God. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your people, from your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham went as the Lord told him. So God promised the land to the people that God chose. And he did it in a very unique manner. And God made his promise. By the way, this is already the New Testament. This is not the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So the land was chosen. The land was promised by God to a people that were chosen by God, sworn by God himself. There's no politics in this, by the way. It's very, very simple. Okay? But the result of this is going to be complicated because it wasn't easy. 
And again, I'm standing here as a representative of my people and as a result of the history of the famous people down through the ages. And I'm going to say this with a lot of humility. It wasn't easy. It's not easy to be a Jewish person, just so you know. I mean, it wasn't easy in the past. It's never been easy. In the, it's not going to be easy in the future. Anybody who knows anything about prophecy, and this is not the day that we're going to go into that, but you understand where I'm going with this. And it's not been easy. And my people have paid a terrible price. I'm going to share a word. How many people have been on a tour with me in Israel? So all of you know what balagan means. You see, they're laughing. Now everybody's going to know what balagan means. Okay, balagan is a very nice word. I love it. It comes together with so many races. Balagan is actually Persian, Russian. In Russian, it means circus. In Persian, it means balcony. In Yiddish, it means, well, it means mix up, mess up, everything that doesn't go according to plan. And believe me, I mean, okay. But the balagan is, is the story of the Jewish people. The balagan is not always negative. Okay, we are a person, the people of balagan. We make a lot of balagan ourselves, by the way. Uh, a balagan is what's on the floor of my son's room when he goes back to the army and his mom walks into the room and goes crazy. Okay, that's what a balagan is. And the story of Israel is one big balagan. And I'm going to do a really, really quick history here in a couple of years. I mean, this is a quick, and there's dates and there's paper. And again, there's a lot of history on this all over the place. But I'm going to mention the Egyptians. I'm going to mention the Philistines. This is, you know, something you recognize. Assyrians, remember, wars against the Assyrians, the ten tribes of Israel carried off into captivity. Babylonians destroyed the temple. I mean, Persians had a, a whole balagan with us. The Greek, okay, conquered this area, Alexander the Great. The Maccabean revolt, the Roman period, and I haven't even gotten to the New Testament yet. And then, for reasons that we, we're starting to see here, Jesus decides that this is the place where it's all going to come together. The physical, geographical area where Jesus comes to teach the Gospels. To walk the land, to live, to be crucified and really resurrected is, why am I not surprised, right smack in the middle of all of this. And then the history continues. Because after all of this, we've got Romans. We've got the destruction of Jerusalem in the Second Temple. We've got rebellions. We've got Constantine in the Byzantine Empire. We've got crusades slaughtering people along the way. We've got Muslims. That's how some suddenly take over. We've got Mamluks. We've got Turkish Ottoman Empire. And all of this while the Jewish people are waiting to see what happens. Because the Jewish people are the persecuted people. Just, just a side note, just so you get an understanding of what I'm talking about. Everybody knows about the persecution. Everybody knows about the Holocaust. Everybody knows about the Inquisition. But let me give you a little bit of a number just to put this together. Uh, we are the people who came out of Egypt. The book of Exodus, remember the whole story, crossing the Red Sea. How many people crossed the Red Sea? Millions. Okay. I've heard half a million. I've heard three million. I'm going to say approximately between a million and two million people. If we were a million and a half people 3,500 years ago, how many should we be today? Billions. Totally billions. How many Jews live in the world today? Jewish population altogether? 14 million. All of us have been lost along the way. Some to assimilation, some to persecution. I mean, we are a people who has paid a horrific price along the way for who we are. But I'm not objective. We're kind of an amazing people. Okay? Um, 
I'll give you one little statistic that everybody likes to say. You know that 34% of all Nobel Prizes are people who come from a Jewish background. We're 0.02% of the world population, but we play a very important role. And a lot of the invention, a lot of creativity, some of the bad stuff too, I mean, you know, we make a lot of balagan in the world. Okay? And you can't open a newspaper without having something connected to us. That's who we are. We are in the center of all of this. And the center is getting more complicated. But let's go into the politics a little bit. So for 2,000 years, the Jews have suffered all of this, but we never, never forgot where we came from. We came from here. We came from the promised land. So every Jewish holiday, no matter what it is, you finish with next year in Jerusalem. But we also remember what was lost. In all of these years, we always remembered that the temple in Jerusalem, our spiritual center, the city of Jerusalem is our ancestral home, okay? All of that was lost. I mean, it's so deeply ingrained. Anybody been to a Jewish wedding ever? You know what happens at the end of a Jewish wedding? The bridegroom stomps on the glass. Have you seen it? On, anybody know why? Because even on the most important day of our life, when everything's supposed to be perfect, everything's, you know, everything, you know what weddings are, okay? Something has to be broken to remind us of the temple that was destroyed. That's how deep it is inside us. So all of these years, we never forgot where we came from. We never forgot who we were. And we never forgot our land. And we have been trying to reconnect. It didn't happen for many years. But it changed a little bit later. Because this has always been the promised land. The situation did not allow it. I'm not going to go into all the details. This is not really a history lesson. But at some point, the time came for the promise to be fulfilled. Politically, it came at the end of World War I. Until World War I, we're part of the Ottoman Empire. And again, maps kind of take this. 1914, okay, the Ottoman Empire, this is Turkey, and this is what the Ottomans controlled. But even before the Ottoman Empire actually fell, Jews were starting to say, wait a minute, we should go back to the land of Zion. A guy named Theodor Herzl created a movement that says Jews should go back to Zion. The name of that movement is Zionism, by the way. Basically, Zionism means go back to your homeland. And to go back to our homeland for also political reasons, not only for religious reasons. So Jews started coming back, but under the Ottoman period, it wasn't really working out. All of that changes in 1914, because after 1914, we are part of a great empire called the British Empire. The British conquer this area in 1914. And now, the area that I call the Holy Land, at this time was still called Palestine, comes under British control. Side note, I'm going to diverse here. Why is it called Palestine? After the Jews stood up against the Romans in 71 AD, or 69, 70 AD, okay, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But they didn't destroy the whole country. Um, I'm going to say something that I'm allowed to say. If you say it, you're considered anti-Semitic. No, okay. You can say it because the Bible says it. We're stiff-necked people. We don't get along well with authority. So, okay, the Jews say if we haven't defeated the Romans the first time, we're going to do it the second time. And we rebel against, we're the only people who ever rebelled against the Roman Empire twice. Okay? And we rebelled against the Roman Empire the second time. And the Romans, after they put down the Jewish rebellion, said, wait a minute, those Jews are crazy. 
They are closely connected to their homeland. We want to disassociate the Jews from the land of Judea. That's the name. That's why we're Jews. Land of Judea, Jews. And they passed a law in the Senate that says that they will change the name from Judea. And then somebody says, wait a minute, so what are we going to call it? And somebody in the Senate says, let's give it a name that the Jews will really be upset with. And they named the land after our worst enemy. Who's our worst enemy in the Old Testament? The Philistines. And that's how we got the name Palestine. But here's the funny thing. People today who talk about the story and talk about the argue, or argue about the story say that the name Palestine means that it was never was a Jewish land. <laughs> the thing is, the name Palestine means that it's the Romans poking, an, poking a finger in the Jewish eye. Okay, and anybody says to you, wait a minute, those poor Palestinians, they've been there forever, ask them where the name Palestine came from. The name Palestine has a Jewish connection. And here's part of the falsifying of history that a lot of people don't take into consideration. So the British take control of this area that we call Palestine. They break off half of Palestine and create a state called Transjordan. Okay, that's the nation we know as the Jordan today. And they leave half of Palestine between the river and the sea as their own mandate. And from 1914, or 1920 actually, the British are in control of Palestine. And that's the situation. There's Jews who are coming back to their homeland. There's Arabs living there. There's the British that are the government. We're after World War I. And we start moving into World War II. And everything changes. Because in World War II, the Nazis come to power in Europe. Europe is conquered by the Nazis. Even before the end of the war, we realize what's going on. And the British decide that they are not going to power, bow to pressure. And they are not going to allow the Jews who are making their way out of Europe. This is Europe. Fleeing Europe to come back to their homeland. They blockade the Mediterranean Sea and do not allow the Jews back in. We've never really forgiven the British for that. By the way, um, the story that I'm talking about, the period that I'm talking about, okay, anybody remember a movie called Exodus? Okay, way back. Okay, this is the story of Exodus and the Jews making their way out of Europe. By the way, after you've you know, heard the story, see the movie, though, it's kind of weird. I mean, Paul Newman as an Israeli, he's a little bit too pretty. I mean, you know, <laughs> didn't really work with us. But Exodus depicts this story of Jews making their way out of the inferno in Europe, trying to get to their homeland, and the British closing off and saying, we're not going to allow this. This is unacceptable to the Jews. There's a growing tension between the British in the land, the Arabs in the land, and the Jews in the land. And in the end, in 1947, after the whole world realizes what had happened to the Jewish people, guys, in the Holocaust, one out of every three Jews was murdered by the Germans. I mean, think about that. One-third of the world population of Jews was massacred. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable, unfathomable. And in the end, the British go back to the United Nations and say, listen, you gave us a mandate. We don't know what to do. And in 1947, the United Nations comes, and they tour the land, and they come up with the Solomon Solution. What's the Solomon Solution? Cut the baby in half. And they divide the nation into two areas. The blue areas are going to be the Jewish areas, and the gray areas, or the brown areas, are going to be Arab. It's called the Partition Plan of 1947, and they go back to the United Nations, and they actually have a vote to give the Arabs a homeland and to give the Jews a homeland. We were not happy about the size. We were not happy. You see how it's broken up into three? Okay, David Ben Gurion says, "I don't like it," but 
Even if it's the size of a postage stamp, we need a homeland. And when the United Nations sat down and voted for the partition plan by a two-thirds majority, we were amazed. Russia voted for Israel. Nations who had no, I mean, nothing like this has ever happened again. This is the first time and probably the last time the United Nations did anything good. We call them the United Nothing. Okay, and we have a serious problem. Okay, and, and again, they vote for the partition plan, and I'm going to use some of the terminology that is part of the war that is being waged today. What you're looking at is the world saying to the Jews, here's a two-state solution. Meaning, the offer for a two-state solution was made in 1947. There's talk about a two-state solution today, and what I'm saying is, in Israeli, why didn't they do it back then? Why do you think it's going to work now? We were given a two-state solution. The Jews said, thank you. We danced in the streets. What did the Arabs say? No negotiation, no compromise, no peace. The famous three no's, or the infamous three no's. No negotiation, no compromise, no peace. They say, we are not going to compromise. We're not going to share. We're not going to compromise. This is a fight to the finish. And we knew that that was going to happen. By the way, the population in the country at the time was 600,000, half a million. We're surrounded by Arabs all around us. And in the end, the British say, okay, we can't take this anymore. And in May of 1948, they play the bagpipes, take down the flag, and they sail off into the West, saying basically, not our problem, deal with it. The American Secretary of State told the president it's going to be another massacre. The Jews are going to be wiped off the map because they knew that the minute this happens, all the nations around us, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, all of them are just waiting on the borders to wipe this little tiny Jewish entity off the map. And that's exactly what happens. David Ben-Gurion actually announces the creation of the state of Israel, and we get attacked from six directions. We don't even have enough borders. The Lebanese from the north, the Syrians from the east, the Jordanians from the east, the Saudis from underneath, the Egyptians from the south. And just to make it interesting, a volunteer army comes together from Iraq to wipe this tiny Jewish entity off the map. We should have been wiped off the map. We weren't. But the fact that we weren't is a miracle. Now, I'm an officer in the IDF. I know how to explain battles. I know how to talk about outflanking and superior firepower. And there's some of the battles were won like that. But some of the battles were won in a completely different manner. And, uh, okay, here, here's a good example, okay? The battle for Safed. Safed is up in the northern part of the country. Um, there's a Jewish popular, There's a Jewish fighter, uh, fighters there. There's the Arab fighters there. And we were losing the battle. And we decided to use one of our... <laughs> How do you say? Heavy weapons. We didn't have any heavy weapons, so somebody welded together some pipes and, and put some explosives in them, and we used it as a makeshift uh, mortar. So we're firing this makeshift mortar into the air, but somebody didn't put the fins on, so the, the round is not flying true. It's kind of swirling in the air, making a very weird noise, scaring everybody. And it had a lot of explosives, but it wasn't really dangerous. So when it hits the ground, it makes a lot of noise. Now, this is 1948. World War II is just now finished in the Pacific, and everybody knows that the Jews are really, really smart. And the Arabs decided that those smart Jews had put together an atom bomb. So they dropped their weapons and they wanted to run away. That's how we won the battle. That is not a military success. That is a miracle. 
And if you don't understand that, this is coming together. And again, I don't really have a good military answer, except for the fact that the battle was being fought on the ground, but also on a different level. And slowly, slowly, we not only managed to stop the enemy, we managed to push him back and start pushing him back in a completely different direction. We spread out into the areas that were not supposed to be Jewish. And after all of the fighting and all of the battles and all of the history and everything that we talked about, at the end of the War of Independence in 1948, ladies and gentlemen, this is the modern state of Israel. For the first time in 2,000 years, we have a homeland. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. It's small, really tiny. We've got the Galilee up here. We've got the desert down here. Okay, It's a complicated country. It's in the middle of a very bad neighborhood, like we said. There's a, quite a few problems, but for the first time in 2,000 years, we have a land for the Jews to come back to. By the way, a lot of the Jews do. But there's complications. Uh, let me see. This is Jordan. This is the Jordan River. And the country called Jordan is on this side. At the end of the War of 1948, the hills of Samaria and the hills of Judea are left in Jordanian hands. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. Jordan is on the east bank. This area is on the west bank of the Jordan River. That's why it's called the West Bank. The reason it's called the West Bank is because it's Jordanian. That's something I need you to understand. When anybody calls it the West Bank, okay, and they say it belonged to the Palestinians, ask them where the, the name West Bank come from. Because if it's not connected to Jordan, it's not a West Bank. Did you understand what I just now said? And again, that's part of the argument, and that's part of the, 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 the rhetoric that is going on. On the southern corner, there's a little strip of land that has a city called Gaza in the middle of it. Gaza's always been a Balagan city, by the way. I mean, ask Samson. Okay? He had a big Balagan in Gaza. But the west of the Gaza Strip, also on the corner of uh, the Mediterranean, is left in Egyptian hands. West Bank is Jordanian, the Gaza Strip is Egyptian, and that's the situation at the end of the War of 1948. But it's a little bit more complicated because of, uh, because of you see the little red dot in the middle, actually indicates the place of a very important city. There's a little corridor that leads to the city of Jerusalem. And at the end of the War of 1948, Jerusalem is actually divided in two. Half of Jerusalem, the western part of Jerusalem, is in Israeli hands, and half of Jerusalem, the eastern part of Jerusalem, is in Jordanian hands, including the Jewish quarter that has been Jewish since the time of King David, including the western wall, which is the holiest site for Jews in the world. And that's the situation at the end of the war. That's a situation that we're dealing with even today because our enemies believe that because we did not conquer it in 1948, it belongs to the Arabs and not to the Jews. There's even parts of some of your administrations who actually accepted the same thing. But that's the situation in Jerusalem on the ground. Okay, The Jewish quarter is in Jordanian hands, but the Jewish people say, we have a nation, and we start building. But it becomes complicated because what happens to all of the Arabs living in the Holy Land at the time? 
There's probably about a million, a million point two Arabs living in the Holy Land. And one of two things happen. Some of them pick up and leave. Their leadership told them, don't mess with those Jews. Their leadership, the Arab leadership, Al-Hamin al husseini told the Arabs, if the Jewish conquer your town, your village, your neighborhood, pick up and leave, because we, the great Arab nation, are going to wipe the Jews off the map. And that's what they believed. They did believe that it's only going to be a matter of two weeks, and they would wipe Israel off the map. So they did. They left the area, and they ran out, and a lot of them ran into Lebanon, a lot of them ran into the West Bank, a lot of them ran into the Gaza Strip. They went there thinking that it's going to be a week, it's going to be two weeks until they are allowed back into their houses. They were waiting for Israel be, to be destroyed. I'm glad to say that didn't happen. The sad part of the story, though, is that the nations that they found themselves were not willing to accept them and left them in the camps ever since. That is the Palestinian refugee problem. That's how it was created. But Israel says, wait a minute, we didn't create the problem. We didn't tell them to leave. In fact, we told them the opposite. We said, stay with us. Be a part of this Jewish nation. You will be complete citizens just like everybody else. We will defend your property. We will defend your rights. Stay and be a part of this. And as evidence of that is the next piece of information. Because a lot of people do not know that a large majority of them stayed, a large minority of them stayed. And today, this is 2006, the numbers are more or less the same. Okay, In Israel today, 20% of the citizens of the state of Israel are Arab Muslims. Did you know that? One out of every five Israelis is an Arab Muslim. He is a citizen just like me. He has the same rights. He pays taxes. He has the same free health care and the same free education. The Israeli Ministry of Education has a Muslim Arab section. I know because I was there. My wife's a teacher. You walk into the Israeli Jewish Ministry of Education, downtown Jerusalem, and there's a whole section of the, of the Ministry of Education that's in Arabic. We teach Quran in Arabic. My tax money pays for teaching children Quran in Arabic because they are citizens of the state of Israel. We didn't tell them to go. We said stay. And the Arabs that stayed in Israel have prospered because if you curse us, you will be cursed. But if you bless us, will be blessed. And a lot of them were blessed. The highest educated Arabs in the world are the Arabs that live in Israel. The longest living Arabs in the world, meaning as far as life expectancy in all of the Arab nations, is higher in Israel for Arabs than anywhere else in the world. I mean, that is part of the story. Have you heard that? Does the press talk about it? Has anybody realized that? But this is a part of our life today. But it's not over. Because what happens is that in 1948, all of the Jews living all over the Middle East are told to leave. And very quickly, we find ourselves incorporating hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees who have been kicked out of Arab lands from Egypt, from Syria, from Iraq, from Tunisia. And we start building. And again, we had a problem. They were living in tents in the beginning, but we didn't leave them in the tents and we didn't leave them in the camps. We incorporated them into our society, and we start, they are part of us. I mean, it's not we incorporate. I mean, they are part of who we are. And we started building a nation, and slowly, slowly, the nation grows into what you see today. I'm not objective, really. I'm Israeli. I'm Jewish. I'm not objective. But I am proud of what we've managed to do 
since May of 1948. It's amazing. Read the statistics. It's a modern, Western-style democracy that's based on the same values and the same ideas that the United States of America is based on. We are very, very close. And we've managed to hold it together. But, again, it hasn't come for free. So we have to go through the whole thing again in June of 1967. The war takes six days, which is why it's called the... Well, there you go. You're, most of you are awake. I mean, you know, it's, it's okay. But the six-day war in June of 1967, some of you will remember it, but everything changes after the war. The border changes. Israel manages to push the, Jordan, the Egyptians across the Sinai Peninsula. We manage to push the Jordanians back across the Jordan River. The West Bank is in our hands, and more important than anything, what's in our hands now? The city of Jerusalem and everything that is considered. And on the last two days of the war, we go up on the Golan Heights. If you come on a trip to Israel, you're going to see that. We're going to go up on the Golan Heights and see how we push the Syrians away from the main source of water in Israel, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. We won the Six-Day War. You all know that. You all know that it was a great victory. I want to tell you that from our point of view, the Six-Day War is a near-death experience. We thought we were going to die. I mean, five Arab nations around us, the whole world around us. I mean, tanks, artillery, everything around us. We're this tiny little nation, you know, barely. By the way, we don't even have any allies. The United States of America was not an ally of Israel, not in the way it is today at that point. That's why when you see the movies of the Six-Day War, you see Mirage, which are French aircraft. Okay, we did manage to stop the enemy and push back, but we didn't think that was going to happen. And I still remember growing up in Jerusalem in 1967, we were afraid that we were going to be annihilated. But we weren't. We pushed back a great victory, and it went to our heads. Pride is very, very dangerous when it's in a person. It's much, much more dangerous when it's in a nation. We thought we were the greater Israeli nation. We can do everything, the biggest army in the world, blah, 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 blah. And we didn't pay attention to what was coming around the corner because our enemies decided that this is not the end of the story. And it all broke out in 1973. Have you ever heard of the Yom Kippur War? The Day of Atonement, the holiest day, they pulled off a sneak attack and because we were full of pride and because we were full of ourselves, we didn't see it coming. I mean, even the famous Mossad, I mean, the, the most um, amazing intelligence agency, couldn't put two and two together. The United States, by the way, knew it was coming. And Henry Kissinger decided not to warn Israel in order to allow the Arabs to get the first blow and maybe it'll give them back some of their pride. I mean, that's the mentality that, that we were dealing with. And it all comes together in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. Just a quick side note. Um, the military in Israel is partly young people, um, 19, 20, 21 years old. Okay, that's the regular army. Their job is to defend the borders Okay? Most of Israel's military might is people like me today who are in reserves. Well, not lately. I think they took my company away from me and gave it to somebody younger and more handsome, and I'm still trying to deal with that. Okay. <clears throat> Midlife crisis. I mean, but um, what I'm saying is that the National Guard, in your terms, okay, is supposed to come to the war in case of an all-out war, and most of Israel's military might is the older reserves and not the younger regular army. The regular army just managed to hold the border. And in the end of the war in 1973, we managed to push the enemy back. The borders retained to the return to the original borders, 
But something seriously happened on both sides of the borders. I think we realized that we'd almost dropped the ball. That something very, very terrible almost happened. We realized that we cannot take for granted the fact that we will exist in the Middle East. But I think our enemies realized something else. Our enemies realized, I think after 73, that you cannot buy enough tanks and not buy enough armor and not buy enough planes to take Israel on one-to-one militarily. Look at it. They had the element of surprise and they had huge numeric superiority and they still lost the war. So they changed tactics. And our enemy does not fight us army to army. The enemy fights us rocket to civilian population. You guys are going to deal with that soon also. Okay? And the enemy has decided to move the war to the imagery, media, truth and falsehood realm, to the spiritual war that actually does not fight against the physical part of Israel, but against the legitimacy and the spiritual aspect of Israel. And that's the war that's going on, has been going on since 1973. A couple more things have happened since we're going to do this. Egypt comes in 1979 and makes a peace agreement with the Israelis. Anwar Sadat, who is the president of Egypt, pays the ultimate price for that and is assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood immediately after that. In Lebanon, the PLO sets up uh, an area from which they attack Israel across the northern border. This is the northern border up here. Okay, Israel goes in in 1981, 1982 in order to clear out the PLO. By the way, we say every generation in Israel has its war. This is my war, and this is my baby right here, and this is me. When I was a little bit younger. Isn't it beautiful? No, no, let's not go there. Okay. But we clear the Palestinians out of the southern part of, of uh, Lebanon. We try to create a pro-Israeli situation back there. It doesn't work out. And in the power vacuum that's left in southern Lebanon, something else takes control. The Jordanians come in 1994 and make a peace agreement with us. So we have peace now with the Jordanians, and actually we have a very good relationship with the Jordanians, a lot better than most people even know about. But there's things I cannot say from here. The next war with Lebanon takes place in 2006, because in the power vacuum, a pro-Iranian organization takes, comes to power in southern Lebanon. I don't know if you've heard of the Hezbollah. Okay, and they are now uh, situated in southern Lebanon. There's a war against them in 2006. It doesn't really end um, completely. And now the Hezbollah are dealing with something else that's going on because just around the corner in Syria, the Hezbollah, together with the Syrian regime, together with the Russians, and together with the, the Iranians, have come together to create a new threat on the northern border of Israel. And that's what we're going to probably be dealing with in the near but that doesn't mean the old threats have gone because the Palestinians decided <clears throat> to split themselves into two. The Palestinians in the West Bank are under the leadership of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which is an offshoot of the PLO. But they have received legitimacy from the world, including from your government. On the other hand, in the Gaza Strip on the other side, okay, the pro Islamic fundamentalist organization called Hamas has overthrown the Palestinian Authority government and now we have a Muslim fundamentalist organization in Gaza that is using Gaza to fire rockets against downtown Israel. And every once in a while there's this round of fighting 
Okay, they fire rockets for all kinds of inter-political reasons. Israel has to go in and clean out the rockets. We send our soldiers inside. And just a quick side note. I don't know if you understand, but Israel has the military might to wipe Gaza off the map. We don't. And we don't because we're not willing to take responsibility for millions, well, not millions, probably hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties. So what do we do? We either send our soldiers into Gaza street by street, house by house. We put them in harm's way in order not to carpet bomb Gaza. Or we do something else. We put together millions of billions of dollars of, of resources and Jewish creativity to create an anti-rocket missile system called the Iron Dome. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. And that's defending us, actually and allowing us not to have to go into Gaza. Gaza. And that's more or less the situation today. I'm here to tell you this story because this is me. Those are my boys. This is my family. This is my house. This is my country. This is where I live. And I live here as a result of everything that you've seen. And that all the way back to the original promise and the original choosing. That's why I'm there. And that's why I'm willing to stand up. That's why I'm willing to defend my country. All my life I've been a soldier. All my life I've been a warrior. And I've defended my country. And what I need you to know is this is where we come from. And this is the promise that was made. But I'm going to leave that on the screen. And I'm going to go somewhere else. Because the reason I'm here is because today to defend my country... I need your help. Because the war that's being fought for Israel right now is not a war that's on the battlefield. It's not a war that's being fought with bullets. It's a different kind of war. It's a war that's meant to delegitimize Israel. People are trying to disassociate the promise and the country and the people. They're saying you weren't there. The Palestinians were there. Or you shouldn't be there today. Or you're doing terrible things and there's a war of disinformation. There's actually a war of false information that's trying to de-associate me from my land. And in that war, I need your help. The reason I came here and said, put all of this on screens and, and, and PowerPoint presentations so you know the truth. Because in the war of disinformation and the war of false news, the only ammunition that you can use is the truth. I need you to know the truth. But here's something interesting that I realized last time I was in the States, and I'm realizing it today too, because you are also in the middle of a war of disinformation. The war that is going on to disenfranchise who you are, the war that's going on to disassociate you, your values, your culture from your country. The war that's going on to say it's not right to be a Christian in this nation anymore is the same kind of war that's saying it's not right for me to be an Israeli. And when I was sitting in the States seeing this, I realized that the same war, the same battle, the same spiritual war that's going on for Israel is the same spiritual battle that you're going on, that you're having in the States for your own reasons. I was amazed to see that our enemies are the same. 
also on the political level, I mean, think about what's going on in the world today. Think about North Korea, which is one of your main enemies, has now, according to the news, become good friends with Iran, which is our main enemy. Okay? And now they're pals, and they're dealing with it, and they're selling technology one to another. And by the way, we are very worried about Iran. Okay? And we don't understand why you don't understand how worried we are. I mean, think about this, okay? We've already dealt with the Iranians. I mean, I'm Jewish. You saw my history just now. You know that I've dealt with people who want to kill. We take people who want to kill us very seriously. I mean, been there? I mean, we have holidays. Do you know what a Jewish holiday is? Anybody know Jewish Hanukkah, Passover? The idea behind a Jewish holiday is this. They tried to kill us. They didn't kill us. Let's eat. And the way we say it, we already have one Persian holiday, Iranian holiday. We don't need another one. Okay? And what I'm saying is, in a very bad, very complicated situation, now the war is not only being fought on the, the, the worldly uh, battlefield, but it's fought in the spiritual battlefield. And I need your help in this war. I need you to stand up and say what is right, and what is wrong. I need you to stand up and say what's true and what's false. I brought you some truth here. Use it. I need you to start using it because in this war, we are losing. I'm saying this truthfully. We are losing. By the way, I'm not the only one losing. You're losing your battle too. And you're losing your battle because not enough people are willing to stand up and say what's right and what's wrong. And the same values that have made America great, and again, I've studied history, the, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic that has been a part of America all of its history. And even though not everybody's religious, but that ethic has been actually part of your government and become part of your administration is being eroded and other ethics are starting to take place and you are being sidelined because of this new movement that's going on. And the reason I reason, one of the examples I, I gave it a couple of times, I was in Colorado last year and I'm sitting with a group of Calvary, Patch, uh, Calvary Chapel pastors, you know, and they're talking about this exact situation and the war that's going on. And one of the teachers, one of the women there is a teacher in an elementary school. And uh, she tells about the fact that she has Muslim children in her class, which is fine. And she says, wait a minute, but what's weird about this is, is that I'm responsible for my Muslim students to adhere to their religion. That's part of my responsibility as a teacher in the system. I have to make sure that they dress accordingly. I have to make sure that they eat accordingly. She says, but if I close my eyes and thank Jesus for my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I get in trouble with my principal. There's something wrong with that. And there's something wrong with that because not enough people are willing to stand up and say that there's something wrong. And what I'm trying to say, just like I am asking you to stand up and know the truth and know what's going on and help me defend my country, you also need to stand up, know the truth, know what's going on, and help defend your country. And I'm trying to move this in. I've got a reason. I've got a role here. But I need you to be a part of the solution. I need you to stand up. I need you to make a difference. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, it's being fought, you know, it, it's, it's an internet war. Okay, the whole war is being fought on Facebook. 
But you have Facebook, and you have a Facebook account, okay? And if the war is being fought on Facebook, please stand up and go to fight. Make a difference. The way we say it, if you're saying that it's a war that's being fought on the, how do you say, on the information highway, I'm going to say, yes, the information highway is a two-way street. You need to start making a difference. I've brought you some ammunition about part of my war, but you need to put together the ammunition about your war, and you need to stand up and make a difference. So I've brought all of this here so you understand who I am, what I am, and what I mean. But I'm going to go a little bit further, and I'm going to say you guys need to stand up. And let's finish all of this in one more passage from the book of Ezekiel. I read a little while ago, and I said, it so connects. You've probably heard this, too. I'm in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. Ezekiel wrote this on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem. And here's what he said. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found And Jerusalem was destroyed. The king of Jerusalem has his son slaughtered in front of his eyes and his eyes poked out and he's carried off to back captivity in Babylon. And again, this should have been the end of the story of the Jewish people. This should have been the end of Jerusalem. It wasn't. But what I'm saying is this. I need you to stand in the gap. I need you to look out at the enemy, understand what's going on. You need to stand in the gap and you need to make a difference. I need you to be the ones that he finds and not the ones that he doesn't find. You need to do that for your reasons. You need to do that for our reasons. We need to do that together. So take this with you, and please remember, from here, you go out.